Greetings, and welcome to What is California, a podcast featuring conversations with notable Californians in a quest to understand the Golden State. I'm your host, Stu Van Aersdale. On this episode, we welcome some distinguished guests for the inaugural What is California Year in Review. We'll talk about the highlights and the lowlights of 2021, how the state rebounded from the horror show of 2020, what challenges remain for 2022, and maybe some fun and interesting developments you didn't hear about this year, and what it all represents in the bigger California story. It's a lot to get to and a lot to make sense of, but thankfully, an exquisite panel of California experts has joined me to talk it over. Let's introduce them. First, he's a columnist for the Los Angeles Times and the host of that paper's excellent daily news podcast, The Times, Gustavo Ariano. Welcome, Gustavo. How you doing? Hola, Stu. Next, she's a senior editor of Food and Wine at the San Francisco Chronicle. Welcome, Serena Dye. How's it going, Serena? Going good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Finally, she's the author of the spectacular, oracular, What Matters newsletter for Cal Matters, Emily Hoven. Welcome, Emily. How you doing? I'm good. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for being here. It's great to have all of you. This is going to be fun. Let's get into it. We'll start with what might be a silly question for all of you, considering the singular heat and intensity of last year's dumpster fire. But on a personal level, how was your 2021 compared with your 2020? Gustavo, why don't you kick us off? Was an improvement still kind of a slog? Oh, no. When you're a reporter, uh, the worse the world is, the better it is for you because you don't stop working. (laughs) Uh, And it's very cynical to say, but sadly, it's true. So uh, I... Still a columnist with LA Times, started hosting the the daily podcast for the LA Times and um, continued doing some of my other spiel. Uh, my wife has a restaurant, so that always weighs on my mind. And thankfully, she's been able to make it through. So uh, if, if, you're, if your years are not improving as you get older, uh, we got to do something about it. So I'm doing good. What about you, Serena? Uh, definitely better. I think that there were vaccines this year automatically made it better. So I didn't have to be trapped inside the whole time. I moved to California over the pandemic last year. Um, and so the, it was exciting, definitely very exciting. I'm glad to be here. But it, I, I would say my introduction to California was, it wasn't, I think the, the week that the, the sky turned red in the Bay Area is the, the week that I arrived. So I would say I would say things were not at their peak. (laughs) California did not put its best face forward for me. So it's been nice this year to to see actually see some things and go to places. Obviously, I cover food. So to actually eat in some restaurants this year uh, was a market improvement. Okay, cool. What a welcome. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> How about you, Emily? Yeah, I think it was better. Um, similar to Serena. So I'm I'm from California, but I actually moved to Sacramento on March first, twenty twenty. Oh wow. Which was about I think a couple of weeks before the first shutdown. So I didn't really know anyone. I was in a barely furnished apartment and I was just trying to figure out what was going on. Um but no, like things have gotten a lot better. I adopted a cat. I started, you know, going out more and meeting more colleagues and more friends and joining different activities in Sacramento. So I'm starting to feel a lot more rooted in the community. But definitely for most of 2020, I was sort of like, what am I doing here? Because I wasn't really able to go to the Capitol or do in-person interviews with people. And so it was hard to kind of feel like, you know, you're, you're rooted there. Um, so this year has definitely been an improvement on that. Cool. Well, I would love to hear about your favorite California experiences of 2021. Serena, did you get to go anywhere or do anything that restored or deepened a sense of place here after a year of lockdowns and quarantines, especially since that's all you really had since you moved here? 
Yeah, I mean, definitely. Just everything is is new. I, I feel a little bit like a fraud even being here, but I was. It, it's been really awesome to just go to places as they've been opening up and getting a feel for things. And you know, it's not. I, I think that the idea of normal is pretty much over. But to see how people are making it work and seeing how people are adapting and um, talking about some really real issues, but also serving some really great food. Um, just and all of it has has helped ground things a little bit, and especially you know takeout is just not the same. Delivery is not the same as as going into a restaurant. And the thing I love about covering uh, thing about love about covering food and going having um, going to restaurants as well is that they really um, are a foundation of a lot of communities and, and meeting places and places where you really feel like you're part of a, uh, of a city. And so um, just every various place trying finer dining stuff, going to some really incredible bakeries. Um, that's all been really fun. And I, I feel very lucky that I, it's all also fresh to me and, and it's awesome. How about you, Gustavo? Did you get to go anywhere or do anything that was kind of restored that sense of place in, in LA? <laughs> I, I never have to have my sense of place restored because I've lived here my entire life. I'm an Orange County boy. I, I, I'm i the outcast of the family. Instead of uh, living in Anaheim, I just went 10 minutes down the five freeway and now live in Santana. But for me, I guess the best, the best place I went to was arguably the birthplace of the state that we know as California. It's uh, where the first Christian baptism in California came. So it's a spot called La, uh, La Cristianita. It's in Camp Pendleton. So you have to go in there uh, with special permission. And they have this plaque featuring, you know, a stern pa uh, padre, Spanish padre, extending his hand and a Indian woman meekly putting up her baby to get uh, baptized. And this was one of the founding myths of California, something retold in the history books for decades and decades, now mostly forgotten. So I went down there to do a column about what's the future of California, especially now that we lost population and census for the first time ever. And, you know, it's a big fraud. It's a big fraud. California is mm -hmm. one giant fraud. So what are you going to do about it? And that's always been my... I'm not going anywhere. I, 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 I love to ridicule the California quitters, the people who say, oh, California is too hard to live in. I want to go to Tennessee or Florida. There's no personal taxes in Florida. Go, go, go. We don't need you here. I, I want, but I think we need to, you know, one thing I've devoted most of my career to, and I'm glad that the LA Times is doing that, is allowing me to implode all these mythologies that we tell ourselves. Like, I'm glad, Serena, that you got greeted by an inferno in the sky. That's what <laughs> California. You're not scared. We want people like you. Move, you know, fight on, so to speak. All right. What about you, Emily? Um, yeah, I think for me, honestly, one of my favorite things of this past year was I joined this French alliance, the Alliance Française in Sacramento. Um, I actually studied French in high school and college, and I lived for a year in France before I really started my journalism career. And so um, genuinely, like, I, I just adore this French group in Sacramento. And it's actually been a really great way for me to feel connected to the city. They hold weekly walks where, you know, we kind of go through different neighborhoods of Sacramento. We try different restaurants and wine bars and kind of getting connected to that part of the community. We went to some art shows featuring um, French artists in Sacramento. And so I feel like it's really been a great way for me to meet people and then also just see parts of Sacramento that I wouldn't necessarily have otherwise gone to. Um, and so it's really this awesome collision of cultures for me that I absolutely adore. There's actually this um, cafe in Sacramento where 
um, they have a French karaoke night. And <laughs> the other time I went there, there was all these Russian pe- there were these Russian people who came, French people. People were singing in Japanese. People were singing in Mandarin. And I absolutely love it to have that multicultural vibe. Um, I grew up in like a very multicultural community in the Bay Area. And so anytime there's five plus languages being spoken and people sharing stories about like their hometowns in different countries, I just really treasure that. And I feel really fortunate to have, um, you know, kind of become a part of this community here in Sacramento. That's amazing. I love French karaoke night. Do you have a French karaoke jam? (laughs) Well, the thing that makes, so I actually, last time I went there, I actually rapped an Eminem song because I was like, I think I'm asked to represent English because there was just so many different all these French people were just staring at me like first of all what are you saying second of all why did you choose this it was love the way you lie (laughs) I mean that song is just an absolute jam and so um anyway good times damn that's a big swing that's a challenge I'm impressed (laughs) thank you thank you it was I was literally sweating and gasping for air at the end because yeah when you're rapping for that long I like couldn't I couldn't breathe at the end, but it was worth it. <laughs> all right, let's go ahead and start talking a little bit about, um, you know, let's pivot to the state, all right? Not to generalize, but, you know, 2020 was tough on virtually every Californian in one way or another. Uh, Emily, what did you think California's biggest stress point was at the end of 2020, heading into 2021? And how do you think it recovered? Yeah, I mean, I think there were obviously a lot of different stress points. I think one of the biggest ones probably was COVID. I mean, I just remember in December last year when the ICUs were just filling up all across the state and the governor came out and said, okay, we're going to have this, you know, regional lockdown based on ICU capacity. And every day for the newsletter, you know, I'm kind of checking those hospital numbers and just seeing, you know, the numbers go up and we're talking to, you know, emergency room workers and hospital workers who are just saying it's an absolute stress zone. Um, but, you know, I do think overall we are in a better place. There are vaccines, there are boosters. Um, so we have at least some more protection than we did last year. And I think we know better how to handle COVID than we did last year. Um, but I just think that it's going to be this sort of ongoing challenge. And for me, it kind of hit me the other day. I was like, for, for Gavin Newsom, you know, COVID is really going to define his entire governorship. You know, even even next the next term that he has, if he wins that again, I think it's really just going to be carrying on because we have these economic impacts. We have this uh, these unemployment impacts, small business impacts, the health impacts, you know, the educational impacts. And so I really just think that um, even as those things improve, there are going to be ripple effects and consequences that we're not really going to fully understand for years or perhaps even decades to come. Um, they just had a hearing on, you know, kids' mental health um, in the legislature and just seeing the devastating numbers about the number of kids that are thinking about suicide and things like that. I mean, um, so even as we start to understand those things and we start to make progress on addressing them, and obviously California has, you know, these huge surpluses both last year and this year to kind of address some of these problems, I think it's going to be an, re- an ongoing challenge for the state moving forward. Yeah, what about you, Gustavo? What do you think? COVID, COVID, COVID. COVID and its discontents. I mean, I remember this time last year, so December, everyone's Facebook timelines were being filled with people that they knew who died or family members who took over someone's particular Facebook page to announce that they de- they were dead. And this was right before the, the vaccines were starting to roll out. Like, we could see it. It's on the hill. They're going to be start being released in January, and people are just dying. And all the grief that came with that. 
the shut and then everything that came out, the shutdown of restaurants, how it impacted so many people that I know. I you know, I've been writing about food for 20 years, so the food industry is something that I pay more attention to than say people who don't do it full time, you know, as much attention to as as other people as people do it full time. Um and then, you know, just also COVID was I think just a wake up call again to in California, we really just delude ourselves into believing we are just one from where. Look, we're the best state by far, but still, there's just so many problems involved. And so, you saw the inequities of COVID. It hit community of color communities of colors harder than anywhere. It hit impoverished areas harder than anywhere. It hit uh, more conservative areas that, by the way, tend to be more uh, impoverished than other places, but the conservative folks never like to talk about that. So as 2022 comes in, I mean, we'll see what happens with Omicron. I hope you're right, Emily, that we know what we're doing <laughs> because I don't think we do. I don't think like the 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 best we could hope for is that we tried and tried. And I do think Newsom did try that, but now he's going to have to deal with again the, the it's discontents the housing market the uh you know disparities still in the criminal justice system also the rise in crimes that's happening and that people are now blaming oh on these progressive DAs like Chesa Boudin George Gascon and whatnot so I think what you're going to see into I know I'm jumping ahead but I think what happened in 2020 informed 2021 and what's going on in 2021 is going to probably boomerang into 2022 and it's it's going to be tough yeah, Serena what's your take on that yeah, I mean, yes, COVID, but I think the the bigger thing is all of these issues we're talking about related to each other, right? Like the housing crisis and poverty and um, social justice issues and uh, and crime as well and mental health issues. These are all deeply connected. And the big thing about COVID is it did expose how bad things really were. I think when you're stuck in your house and or not, or, or you're forced to be out there and see how many, how alone you might be because there are so many people who are sick in their house. All of these things really illustrated all these problems that we really no longer can afford to ignore. Um, you know, here, especially in in the Bay Area, crime is something that people are really talking about, and uh, it it becomes very challenging to talk about because it's what Gustav said is true. A lot of people are blaming it on progressive policies, even though that might not necessarily be the cause, but because of the people who are for progressive policies are stuck in this position where you're defending it, but then it, it gets caught up in this thing of how do we talk about things that are actually, people are having become victims of crimes at this point and, and how you can't really ignore the fact that people are, are, are feeling like less safe. And when, you know, elections come up, that's going to be a big, huge issue. Housing impacts that, mental health impacts that. The economy is a big thing. A lot of people are are leaving their jobs because they're unhappy because they're honest. A lot of people are just underpaid and and there needs to be a whole restructuring of, of how we're we're functioning as a society. And um, I, I think people are, are are feeling very fueled up on, on really trying and tackle these issues and talking them in a very real way. Um, and then we haven't even mentioned how bad the fires were in 2020. And um, you know, I, I, I cover wine, and that was. Climate, I mean, it's really, you know, it's been coming up for a long time. And I think that that for at least that industry in particular, it's it's really been a huge wake up call. And, and how are we going to move into the future? And it feels it feels very pivotal right now. And all of it is blended together and talking to each other and interconnected in a way that um, it's just it's a really complex network. And you can't really take off one box without it suddenly dominoing to another 
but those two groups aren't necessarily talking to each other. Well, let's stick with that for a second, because Serena, in your role at The Chronicle, as you alluded to, you don't just cover restaurants or wine bars. You watch industries that are central to California's economy, and they have been challenged this year on all those fronts you just mentioned. You've got farms that supply restaurants across the state, across the West, really. They've been stricken with drought, bars and restaurants reckoning with COVID regulations, labor shortages, fire, smoke, drought, ravaging wineries. Um, we've seen The Chronicle report extensively on sexual misconduct investigations into restaurateurs and master sommeliers. So what do you think the biggest success and maybe the biggest challenge or perhaps even failure uh, you saw in these industries was in 2021? You know, it's 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 hard to say. It's, it's, I don't think it was confined to 2021, some of these, these issues. Um, for example, a lot of the the restaurants that are struggling the most to hire staff are are fast food restaurants, like these these places that are bigger companies and have very much relied on um, low wage labor in order to function and in order to serve food at the prices that they serve, which is is fairly low. I mean, I think there's a not to get too off topic. I think there's a tendency to to demonize a specific chains and companies for not paying people enough. And the truth is they should be paying people more, but it's complicated, right? Like the people who are eating at those places maybe don't have as much money either. So it's again, all interconnected. So none of these things, I, none of these things exist in a silo. Like the, the wineries aren't existing in silo, the restaurants aren't existing in silo. They're all, all um, you know, the structures in place are incentivizing people to pay people that that little, um, if, if that makes sense. And then in, in turn, the people who are, uh, people who feel like that's the only food they can afford, um, you know, are incentivized because they're also not getting paid that much from their job and maybe in another industry. Um, so I, I think it's very much, uh, again, these are none of these issues are new uh, that are, are impacting the restaurant and wine industry um, right now, but they are, I think, more illustrated in part because uh, a problem might be simmering in the background for a long time and you kind of go about your life. A lot of the mistakes have been made for many, many years by many, many people. And I, I do think there are people in the industry who are seeing that and seeing like, OK, I don't have control over um, the climate policies at the federal level. I don't have control over um, the rain, but what is, and I don't have control over the fact that this labor market is really challenging, but what are ways that I can try and make a change if I want to stay in this industry? So there are restaurants that, even though a lot of restaurants eliminated tipping in hopes of making things more equitable and, and had stopped because it, they just couldn't make the business model work, people are looking at it again and saying, okay, you know what, maybe the climate's changing, maybe people are willing to pay more for this food so that we can make sure um, people are paid more equitably. Okay, maybe we do should just restructure the way that we're hiring so that um, we're being more transparent about what we're paying people and the people who are going to come work for us are going to be people who are willing to work in that kind of model. And so I, I think because so many places were just going to close otherwise, they're they're kind of really examining the practice that they had and seeing which ones need to change. Now, Gustavo, I know you said earlier your wife runs a restaurant. I know you've talked about that on other shows and other contexts. How have the dynamics that Serena was just discussing affected her business and her livelihood in that restaurant? Well, she has she's it's a very small restaurant so her staff is small but she knows that you have to pay people as much as you possibly can but you're also constricted by whatever the economics of your place is and for instance what my wife tries to do is get with 
providers that are not the Cisco's of the world, even though she'd be able to make more money by getting Cisco's. No, she's trying to help these small business entrepreneurs who are trying to make it in and hopefully get like turn into like the next Siete, Siete being this humongous company out of Austin that started doing, um, uh, what do you call it? Gluten-free flour tortillas is now this incredible empire. They just started with one family. She's looking to help out people like that. And sadly, I, I understand when your pocketbook, when you're dictated by your pocketbook, you're going to go to what's ever affordable. That's why a lot of times you have these food deserts where people, where it's more affordable to buy a cup of noodles than it is buying an apple. Absolutely. But I think, and I hope that everything that California has gone through these past couple of years and is going to continue to go, it puts us in that mindset, as Serena put, of if we're going to make a better California, we all have to put our little thing into it. We cannot assume anything. We should, if possible, be able to pay more. And if we can't pay more, at least in our own little ways, try to contribute to that economy. Uh, you know, One of the inspiring things also that I saw uh, in 2021, uh, I just recently did a column about it, about uh, in Los Angeles, Arch the Archbishop Jose Gomez went on this big, long rant about against woke culture and social justice warriors and all that, calling it atheistic. So what did I decide to do? I went to the most Catholic people I know, which is the Catholic worker. These are people doing the Lord's work and they're doing what I mean, they're doing. They're doing the, you know, they're, they're, every Catholic worker has its own mission in Los Angeles. They run a, a soup kitchen that's been going on three times a week for 50 some years in, um, and on Skid Row. And they just make it happen. They make it happen and they're helping in their own way. And I think all Californians, we have a way to do that. And if, they, and if you can pay a little bit more, if you can support restaurants that are paying their workers a living wage or at least, interacting with these smaller micro economies, then we have to do it. That's our mandate, frankly. Emily, I don't know anybody who consumes and processes as much California news as you do. Your newsletter, What Matters, is kind of a one-stop shop for California news, and you make it look easy, and I know that it's not. But what did your work parsing all of the information that you've parsed this year and the stuff that Serena and Gustavo were just talking about, among many, many other topics and challenges. What did all that work reveal to you about the ways California rebounded in 2021? Well, first of all, thank you very much for your kind words um, about the newsletter. Um, in regard to how California has rebounded, I mean, I think, and this is sort of goes back to what Gustavo was saying at the beginning of the show, it sometimes is hard to think of the positive in the news business, I think, because, you know, so much of the news that we see and consume and hear about is often negative. And that's, you know, we're, as journalists, you're always kind of trying to expose the areas where, you know, the state has fallen short, or it could do more to help people, or, you know, it didn't meet the thing it said it was going to do. Um, and so, you know, one example that comes to mind for me is um, the California Employment Unemployment Department, um, EDD, as it's <laughs> famously become known during the pandemic, you know, in 2020, we really just saw EDD become so overwhelmed. It was unable to process so many applications for people that needed that money to put food on the table. They were overrun with fraud. You know, we had everyone was trying to figure out what was going on. Um, and it sort of seemed like all the people that were fraudulently trying to get benefits could get them, but the people that needed them couldn't get them. And it's one of those things where with a department like that, it's going to take so much work and so much time to overhaul it. 
it's operating on like 60 year old technology, um, trying to dive, understand the workings of that bureaucracy and revamping them and making them more modern will take a lot of time, a lot of investment and a lot of prioritization from, from different politicians of different parties. But, you know, there are there are small steps of progress. And I think that that's often um, sometimes the best you can get because state government is such a large entity with so many moving parts. And with the elections that change people every couple of years, it's hard to have that forward momentum. But, you know, the state auditor had some reports showing that, OK, yeah, there's still a lot more work to be done, but they are making progress. They have cleared a ton of claims out of this backlog. They have created a fraud prevention unit unit to crack down on fraud. They hired a federal prosecutor to, you know, look into those crime rings. Um, the amount of people that are calling EDD and having to wait on the line for, you know, 20 hours a day is going down. So there, there is progress like that that I do think is heartening. Um, and I think of, I just think EDD is a really good example because it kind of underscores all of those interactions that we're talking about at once. I mean, these are people that could not work because of COVID. They need money because they may be lo more low income and, you know, they don't have a nest egg to fall back on when they don't have a job. And, you know, talking to those people and seeing how directly state government touched their lives in that respect, it's one of those areas that I think the government should prioritize almost more than anything else. I mean, this is literally, if they cannot work, if they cannot go into their job, how are they going to stay afloat and how are they going to put food on the table? And so, you know, I think that that is becoming more of a priority for the state. And um, hopefully we'll see all of the claims get out of that backlog soon. Yeah. This year, Governor Newsom faced a recall, obviously, which he re he repelled pretty easily. It's hard to believe that even happened this year. I mean, can you that was like just <laughs> like three months ago, right? Uh, it feels like another lifetime. But Gustavo, how if at all, do you think this year's recall election will matter for California's next round of statewide elections in 2022? I don't know if it does. I mean, the Republican Party is still dead. They, they have to drop the alt-loser wing once and for all. They really do. They're just not going to win on that. They have to bridge the divide. Look, Republican Party, they really had a chance with Newsom. I know the Democrats are going to say forever, no, that poll that showed the majority might vote recall, it was skewed, everyone loves Newsom. No, 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 no. A lot of people do not did not like Newsom, do not like Newsom for everything that happened. But the Republican... I'm not saying I think Newsom would have still beaten the recall, but they would have had a much better chance with Kevin Faulkner because you would have been able to get those moderates. You would have, I mean, look, someone like myself, I was inclined to vote against the recall for the recall because I did not like I, I've never been a fan of Newsom. I thought the whole French laundry thing was just whatever. But when they started going against Larry Elder, Larry Elder, who's just like, no, like, absolutely not. So the, the, they're still going to be, uh, you know, it's going to be a democratic state. Like, so Newsom will win if he if he chooses to run again. And so I don't know what the, the impact is. Like people are still disaffected with the Republican party. Now you have a, but you do have those moderates, those independents who are just don't know what to do. I mean, now if ever, if there was a chance for a third party, this would be the time to do so, but it's not going to happen because neither the Democrats or the Republicans will allow it. Yeah. Emily, you have established yourself as a seasoned practitioner of what I like to call Gavinology, trying to figure <laughs> out what motivates Gavin Newsom and sometimes finding out where he even is. 
You know, you wrote about how you were supposed to go to Glasgow to cover his attendance at the UN Climate Summit recently, but communication broke down and then Newsom backed out. He didn't even go. And then he wound up in some weird kind of reclusive, semi-hiding, semi-vacation state without telling anybody. So, Emily, how do you think that episode last month epitomizes Newsom's relationship to his role as governor and I guess by extension, his relationship to the state? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And I think, you know, in like the almost two years that I've been doing this, and I don't think this is just my takeaway. I think a lot of people, a lot of journalists that interact regularly with Newsom and his press office, one of the key takeaways is that it's very disorganized. Um, and, you know, it's, it's just hard to kind of know what their game plan is at any given time. You know, the whole the whole Scotland thing does kind of represent his approach to it because, you know, we didn't we weren't even told about this trip until nine days after the application for press credentials had closed. And it was very hush hush, like we couldn't tell anyone, even though the conference was going to happen the next week. And then that Monday, he says, OK, I'm going. And then on Friday, he says, I'm not going. And there's very little explanation given for any of those decisions. Um, it's, you know, and then you try to figure out, OK, well, why are you not going? You, you talk to his press office. They just keep reiterating its family reasons. You know, then he 10 days later, he shows up at this conference. He says, my kids wanted to, you know, spend the time with me on Halloween. It's like, well, why couldn't you just say that before? You know what I mean? And it, there's kind of just this this lack of clarity about how he's making some of these decisions. And I think this kind of goes to what Gustavo was saying is even if you are a Democrat, sometimes it can be hard to to trust or like the governor because he just seems disingenuous by some of the choices that he's making to not to say or to not say certain things. And it's sort of like, I don't think anyone in California would ever begrudge him for wanting to spend time with his family. We all know it's been a hard two years. We all support fathers that want to stay home and be with their kids, of course. But just be upfront about that. You know what I mean? Don't don't give these very vague reasons that can very easily be you know, misunderstood or turned into misinformation about him being sick with his booster shot. Just tell the truth to people. And I think that they will give you the benefit of the doubt. And I, I don't know if it's disingenuous, but, you know, since you, you, you like French karaoke, he reminds me of that saying, what is it, Louis the Fourteenth? the state or me or whatever. I think that's where people get at Newsom. It's like he really does see carry himself like this rarefied person. And uh, so I think that's why. Uh, what is that saying in, Fran in French? Sorry, l'Estat le or something? Yeah, it's l'Etat c'est moi. Like I am the state. Yeah, and I think that, that another thing about that is sort of this like state of emergency, right? Where we have had this, when he declared a state of emergency in March 2020, it really gave him almost unilateral power over a lot of different things. You know, he's been able to by himself change more than 400 laws and regulations. And he recently extended aspects of that original order through March 2022. And so when you think about it, right, like the separation of powers in California government, you have a legislative body, you have the governor, the executive branch, and then you have the judicial branch. And the legislature obviously still has power, but there are a lot of things that Newsom has been able to do in the past two years all by himself. And so I think to your point, that really does symbolize the l'état c'est moi um, type of mentality where it's like, he really is the state and what he says is law. And um, there are a lot of people that find that frustrating because it's just kind of not how our system of government was actually set up to function. You know, Serena, you mentioned earlier 
San Francisco and the crime wave there and a lot of reporting about a surge in crime around California. But let's focus on San Francisco for just a second, because that's been a news for some pretty brazen crimes recently, from burglaries to thefts to anti-Asian attacks, other violent crimes. Do you think that phenomenon was the biggest story in San Francisco in 2021? Or is there something else that eclipses it? Oh, no, when I absolutely 100%. That is the thing that is on people's mind. And, uh, and yeah, I, I think it's totally the story that especially now, so um, close to the end of the year, and the the recent burglaries in Union Square is definitely the number one thing on people's minds. Um, and it, you know, crime has always been a thing that has been challenging to talk about. We have a data team here at the SF Chronicle that was actually looking at the numbers. And I think you know, people say, oh, there's been this big boom in, in retail thefts. And then they found that actually all of it was coming from one Target store. Just so happened this one store had reported more thefts. And so the numbers are really striking and they're scary for people. But if you look at it, it's not always the, the case. That said, they weren't saying that this doesn't exist because the reality is like many crimes for, low, for lower level crimes, people don't report them as much. And so it, it, it's hard to even find a place where we are talking about the same thing. Um, so when you're talking about the, I think I, I, I had my catalytic converter stolen not that long ago. Um, and then I came back and there was fresh human excrement in front of my door. And, and like everyone knows someone who has had a burglar happen or like someone I know whose garage was getting broken into. And at the same time, you're, you're talking about it, you're seeing the numbers and you, you get the analyses like, hey, this not as bad as how people are making it but it's hard to tell people that when you have something has happened to you or everyone knows somebody who has had something stolen as well um you know you have our as i mentioned earlier da here who is you know wants to lower the prison population and and people saying oh well that's the reason that that's the reason all these crimes are happening because of he's not doing a tough on crime situation then last year, you know, I think everyone's having a very real conversation of our criminal justice system is broken. And so he has a lot of support from people because it's true. I mean, all these conversations about race and how the criminal justice system impacts some people differently than it does others. You know, people of color are just very much disproportionately um, in, in, in jail. So it's, 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 it's tough. I mean, I don't know that we have reached a point where we're talking about it or having a conversation that is productive. There's like the housing crisis, there's, you know, addiction crisis, there's all these health crises going around around it. And so, you know, not to say that everyone who is committing a crime is, is impacted by these other things, but a lot of them are quite interconnected. And it's hard to talk about crime without talking about these other things. And I don't know that there is a way for us to discuss it when people who are a lot of people who are living here are just like, I'm scared. What do I do? Mm -hmm. um, Gustavo, of course, every issue that affects California, whether it's crime, climate, COVID, drought, housing, income inequality, social justice or social injustice, uh, homelessness, you name it, they're all going to have outsized prominence in Los Angeles and that region. What of the Which of those stories really stuck with you this year? The issue, the big issue more in Los Angeles is the homelessness situation uh, where you, I mean, my colleague, Erica Smith, who I think you already had on this podcast, right? Yeah, Erica's yeah, amazing. Yeah, uh, yeah, like, she's great. Erica talked to, you know, folks on the way, on like not even Venice, because the folks in Venice, uh, in Los Angeles, they've been just in, up in arms, literally almost up in arms to go against homeless folks. But talking to longtime liberal activists were saying like, look, even we're getting tired of this. Something needs to happen. And so you're having a a lot of frustration just from 
from everyone in Los Angeles. And remember, I don't live in Los Angeles, so I see this as from the outsider's perspective. Because on one hand, you do have the activists who are going to rally around the issue of income inequality and, and how unhoused people. So you had that big raid by the police uh, and Echo Park where they cleared out a homeless encampment there. And you had the left of Los Angeles going just completely up in arms. We can't do this. There was vigils and all that. Meanwhile, the rest of the city is like cheering on the police. Like you, it, no one, I think no one wants to talk about the issue at hand, which is housing, a housing shortage, income inequality. The folks, at least on the left, have that in mind. But because there is just that frustration, now you're seeing opportunistic politicians coming in. So that's a great segue to L.A. County Sheriff Alex Villanueva, who decides one day in June to stroll into Venice, which is not even his jurisdiction, in a cowboy hat. That's, I think, the first, the, when I first saw the whole thing, I saw him in a cowboy hat. I'm like, uh, what? <laughs> like, it's one thing if you're in Lancaster or out in the desert, you know, and on horseback, I totally get it. And everyone's saying, like, why are you trying to do this flex move on the issue of homelessness? And he's like, oh, I'm promising I'm going to get rid of all of this and whatnot. It's it just, it's absolutely clueless. I mean, all of this to not understate the fact that there are more unhoused people than there ever has been in Los Angeles. Homelessness has always been an issue in Los Angeles. I mean, Skid Row has been there for over a century. So this is uh, going back to what Malcolm X said, the chickens coming home to roost. So what are you going to do about it? Are you just going to shut everything up? No, this is where I mean you have to be part of the solution. It can't just be calling the police or just living in fortress, you know, in fortress, whatever that, and that goes back to Mike Davis, like, you know, this idea of that the rich are always just going to put themselves in fortresses. But once they start camping out in front of you, all of a sudden, well, now the issues that every, the rest of us had to deal with, now you get to deal with it. Exactly. Let's pivot to California's culture and its lifestyle this year. Maybe talk about some of the cultural highlights, not so highlights you observed in California in 2021. Serena, what stood out to you as a high watermark to the extent we have water in California? What was a high watermark for California that uh, we offered the world in 2021? I I'm just so grateful that we have vaccines that can even <laughs> experience cultural events again. And I had a hard time thinking of one singular thing. Um, I, I just am grateful that these are conversations we can have again. I mean, I, you know, you, when you look at history and you look at, um, yeah, when you look at history and looking at, at eras where there has been more culture, has been more art, people are more likely to engage in those topics when they're not under complete stress and they're not like at war and they have some money. And I would say for a lot of the last two years, uh, we have collectively been under a lot of stress and that, you know, I, I'm certainly not one of those people who wrote an entire novel during the pandemic. That was just not what happened for me. And, um, I, yeah, I, I think that, um, I, I think, I think that I, I've just been so grateful at the day that I, I don't, I just, anything that happening is happening. Any creativity that people are putting out, I'm just like, yes, go for it. Some swings aren't hitting but I'm so glad you even have it in you to take a swing. I love that. Hot vax culture. <laughs> How about you, Emily? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I So there was a couple of things that stood out to me. So one is, you know, a lot of people were going out in nature during the pandemic. And I think that that's something that's, I mean, California can offer some of the best nature in the entire world, right? I mean, our state parks, our national parks. Um, and even though, of course, we had the fires and we had the drought, like there's just still so much beauty to be admired. And 
in Sacramento, I recently discovered the American River Trail, you know, which is just absolutely oh. glorious and beautiful. Yeah. Like they have a salmon ladder and there's just all these beautiful lakes. And I surprised myself by biking, you know, 20 plus miles after having not biked for a really long time. And just the simple beauty of that really took my breath away. And also in Sacramento, I think interestingly, I, th- I also think that hard times can motivate people to produce art and motivate people to produce beauty in their own corner of the world. And Sacramento, something that I absolutely love about it is it has so many murals. I have never lived in another city with as many murals and public art as Sacramento. And I, it seems to me that many more just like sprung up during the pandemic, whether they were, you know, commissioned or not by the city. And just going around on walks, which I think everyone started doing more of during the pandemic, I was seeing those those murals and taking pictures of them, posting them online. And um, I don't know, I just, for me, it was really just kind of those simple things, uh, just being out in the nature and, you know, hearing the birds and seeing the animals, seeing the fish, and them kind of going about their normal day-to-day life was something that I found really peaceful and, and re- restorative for myself. Um, and yeah, I just love public art. I think that's one of the greatest things about living in the city. I think California has so much of that, you know, just it really does, I think, add a feeling of community, um, even when we were all isolated in our in our homes. Gustavo, was there any uniquely Californian culture you found yourself basking in or enjoying this year? Oh, geez. Uh, it's every single day, I guess. I mean, when, when you're a columnist, especially a metro columnist, especially the way I envision it, you live California. I mean, I, I always tell people my mandate as the column that I have is to tell the story of who we were, who we are, and who we're becoming as Californians. So just living through my columns, I mean, I, I guess like I especially enjoyed uh, going up to Acton, California, which is on the way up to the Antelope Valley, and uh, meeting with those two cows that serv- that escaped from the slaughterhouse in Pico Rivera. And I was able to use them. They were so emaciated, but they were alive. They were fighters. They were survivors. You want to talk about a metaphor for the California experience. There it is. But then I used that feel-good story to tell the story of the worst ever drought until this one in California history, the drought of like 1854, 1855, that destroyed the cattle kingdoms of Southern California and ushered in this uh, miasma that we've been living in for the past 170 years. So I, I you know, I was trying to think of Kuru. I want to compare myself to, let's just say H.L. Mencken, you know, an old curmudgeon crank who just tells it how it is, but still loves what they do. I mean, I, I, everything California, even telling the story of In-N-Out and talking about how they're pandejos, telling the stories of, you know, from, I, I it, it's been great this year. I mean, uh, my my coverage went from Oxnard to uh, Mecca, California, out near the Salton Sea, down to the Imperial Valley, up to Wasco, California. Didn't wasn't able to get to San Francisco, I uh, rather or San Francisco or Sacramento just yet. So as long as I'm able to tell those stories, I'm going to bask in this California tale that we live in, and I'm going to call out things how they are. But that just again. I view California as a challenge. I do not view it as a paradise. Why do you? Who wants to live in paradise? I know humanity does. We all want to go back to Eden, but paradise is boring. Give me the challenge. Yeah, well, I mean, we do hear from a lot of leaders and officials about getting back to normal after COVID, but I mean, it seems kind of meaningless, right? I mean, I don't know if there'll ever be an after COVID anyway, first of all, per se, especially now that we have Omicron, but, you know, is getting back to our, our lifestyles pre-COVID even something we should do? in 2022. What do you think? Emily, we'll start with you. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think, as we've talked about a little bit before, it's kind of a time for everyone to reevaluate. And for myself personally, you know, having basically worked from home for the past two years, 
I find myself having, you know, more time to work out and be with my cat and see my family and friends and whatnot. And I think that we're really going to see the, because this has been our life for two years, I, it kind of hit me the other day, like when, when COVID first happened, I was like, oh, it'll be over in a few weeks. And like, it's going to be fine. You know, that's what everyone thought, you know, or maybe some people thought it, <laughs> I don't know. Anyway. And then it hit me the other day. I'm like, this is literally going to be like a generation in our history that, you know, it's, it's, it's a marking point and, and we're all going to be forever marked by this. And I think that, you know, whenever something of that magnitude happens in a society, you're never the same afterward, right? Like whether it's a war or, you know, a drastic environmental event or like whatever it may be. So I really think that the markings of this are going to be forever part of this story um, and this generation. And so you know, I don't think we're going to go back to normal. And I think hopefully we can use this opportunity as a way to try to make some things better. But I also do think it's going to make some things worse. Like I said, I mean, we a lot of inequality has gotten worse. I mean, educational availability has gotten worse. I mean, mental health for a lot of people, I think, has gotten worse. And so we're really going to have to try to be creative and address those problems so that they don't, you know, continue to kind of go down this a black hole. What would you say are the underreported success stories from 2021 in each of your cities and regions that people should know about? Um, Emily, why don't we start with you? Sacramento, you know, I think in a lot of ways is kind of seen as the underdog of the bigger California cities. And honestly, like my first year living there, I was sort of like, uh, like, what is there to do here? You know, coming from the Bay Area, there was just it seemed like there was a lot more going on culturally and just different things like that. But I think I do feel like it's sort of trying to undergo this renaissance. And something that was really cool is like they have they've built this um, new like science and curiosity museum near the river in this like really beautiful old building. You know, downtown, it's still kind of struggling to stay afloat. There's a you know a really big challenge with this growing homeless pop population there. Um, but I think what like I think. I think what's always going to be an underreported story, again, because oftentimes like we're forced to cover some of the more negative goings on, is that people are really resilient. And that always is just kind of a beautiful thing to me is like you're if a business closes, another one's going to open. You know what I mean? And there's I do believe that there is always hope in people to strive for that. And so, you know, just going to different restaurants and going, you know, downtown and seeing different community groups form like and people have found new ways to connect as well. You know, a lot of pe uh, people my age, young adults trying to make friends, like we've pivoted to Facebook groups and Meetup and like different apps. And like, that's kind of really inspirational to me. It's like, we're always going to find a way to come together and we're always going to find a way to innovate even when things look really dark. And so that's not really specific to Sacramento per se, but it's something that I have noticed in this past two years that has, you know, given me a lot of hope. Well, Sacramento's nickname is the Indomitable City. So, I mean, there is <laughs> that. Um, Gustavo, how about you? Indomitable is one of my favorite words of all time. So that's so awesome. Just a hustle. The, uh, you know, we talk about resilience. Yes, absolutely important in Los Angeles, especially Southern California. You have had the hustle of people, uh, especially when it comes to food. And I'm sure the same in the Bay Area, Serena, with these pop-up restaurants, people opening up their homes. And on one hand, you could say they're doing it out of desperation. They need to supplement their income or, or create income. But you see now this flourishing 
of culture via food, via uh, pop-up markets, and they are just exploding on social media. And it's really connecting people to what, who are the people of Los Angeles, who are the people of Southern California. And as a result, as always, law enforcement comes in and tries to smack them down and shuts them up for a little bit, but then they go pop up somewhere else. I, I, I think we all need to think, at least of that hustle, uh, the, the, the example that we as Californians need to uh, adapt is the hustle of the street vendor. And, the, and you want to, I think one of the most underrated Californians of all time have been the street vendors. I, and I'll stick specifically uh, with food vendors, Mexican food. I, I wrote about this in my book, Taco USA. The first stars of, one of the first food stars of California were the tamale vendors of, uh, the tamale men of San Francisco going back to the 1870s and 1880s. And down in Southern California and LA, we had the tamale wagons. They are Californians. They always are going to try to be oppressed by the state, but they always win. One way or another, they always win. The public's going to be there for them. You just need to have that courage of the street vendor to say, to have the courage to one day say, you know what? I'm going to be at that corner. I'm going to make food. And if you make it, they will come. And they usually do. Serena, what about you? Any underreported 21 success stories? Yeah, I mean, and the word underreported is is interesting. San Francisco, for a place as small as it is, has a huge national cultural impact. And I would say, like, as far as underreported goes, one thing I've been really, really impressed with, with the Bay Area, that I, I think culturally is very specific here versus, you know, coming from the, the East Coast, it's this legacy of co-ops and this legacy of um, not having a top-down leadership. And... Um, you know, Cheeseboard is a very famous pizza place in, in Berkeley, and it, it, for most of its life, has been a, a co-op setup, and um, that's not really the norm for restaurants in the United States. And I think when we talk about the um, the kinds of changes that restaurants are trying to make, which you know, everyone goes to restaurants, so it's a very easy thing to come up with as um, our, our face of labor issues in this country. And I think here there are a lot of businesses in the Bay Area that are really, really trying to tackle that. A ton of people are, you know, Reams, um, and she is trying to turn her restaurant into a co-op and really trying to face those challenges head on. Um, there are several restaurants who are, we're in the process of reporting or talking about that are trying to dramatically change the way that their business is set up in order to make sure it feels equitable and that um, that more people have a voice. And even if it's not a traditional co-op situation, okay, what what can we work with within our business model to make sure that um, that things are working? And the truth is it's too early to tell how, whether some of these are, it's gonna work within the the overall world and all those challenges. But I think there's, there's very much a culture here of people trying to look at their corner and say, what can we do? And the more people are doing it, I think that's how the culture changes. Um, and, I, and I think that's really special. Finally, we always end every episode with the same question for all guests who is your favorite Californian, past or present, and why. We're going to change it up a little bit for our year-end special for this format. Who is your favorite Californian of 2021 and why? We'll go back around the horn, maybe in reverse this time. Serena, do you have one? I, I think these people who I just talked about who are really making it work. Um, so it's not one specific person, you know, Reem and these people at Day Trip and the people at Liho and all these people who are really doing self-analysis on how to change their business structures. I, I, I think it's really interesting. Again, you know, I don't know if I don't know if it's going to work long term. I don't know how um, and this early on how how well their employee retention is yet. Um, all these various things, I'm just not sure yet. But the fact that they're 
so many people here are willing to try. I, I think it's really special and hopefully it's the kind of model that eventually goes beyond restaurants. Gustavo, favorite Californian of 2021. Damn, man. Um, I, you know, I, I'm going to give a shout out to someone who never gets shouted out much, but he's a professor at UC Santa Barbara, Mario T. Garcia. He has been documenting the Chicano experience for basically 50 years. He's done these biographies of long lost, you know, long forgotten people. I just plugged them in my column for the LA Times. It was a roundup of books that teach you how to fight like a Mexican. And that's the mentality that we need to go into California as, you know, as 2022. And so to me, Dr. Gar Dr. Garcia uh, epitomizes to me the, uh, you know, the type of Californian that I like, someone who just does their work does it great and does it not necessarily for the glamour or like he's not these one of these self-aggrandizers he's far from it you know i remember going to a lecture of his at ucla a couple of years ago he was talking about his book about father luis olivares this pioneering priest in, uh, in the archdiocese of los angeles who uh, offered sanctuary to central american refugees during the 1980s in defiance of uh you know of church leaders at their la placita olvera church in downtown los angeles very few people showed up. It made me very, you know, sad that Kira, who I th I think is a living legend, and maybe 40 people showed up. It should have been a the freaking L.A. Coliseum for him. So Mario T. Garcia, like, I, I, he he is someone I aspire. Well, when I think of myself, how can I be a better Californian? I give it to Mario T. Garcia. And he's originally from El Paso. So you also have the El Paso connection. Fantastic. Emily, last word. What do you got? Yeah, I think it would have to be the state auditor, Elaine Howell. And I know most people, whenever they hear the word audit, they're like, oh my God, that's so boring. Well, both my parents are accountants. I have huge respect for people that kind of like Gustavo was saying, behind the scenes, they're not doing it for the glamour. I actually recently interviewed her. I know you had her on the podcast as well, Stu. She has just really worked her butt off the last, you know, 20 plus years trying to make California a better place by calling politicians out on the things they don't want to be called out on digging into the data, you know, helping low-income kids, low-income women who might have breast cancer. That was all just really inspirational to me. And again, she's not in the spotlight. She's not, you know, a politician. She is making California a better place with just hard, crunchy numbers behind the scenes, doing interviews, talking to people on the ground. And, I, you know, I think in, in a weird way, auditors and journalists kind of have a similar mission, right? You're kind of you're kind of going in there, you're checking, you're talking to people who these programs affect, you know, um, you're not at that remove sometimes that, you know, government officials can be. And you're trying to make changes to make things better. And you're trying to tweak things where they need to be tweaked. And, you know, she's actually stepping down um, at the end of this year, and the governor will, you know, appoint a new auditor whenever that happens, probably next year. And I just think recognizing that the work that she's been doing for the past two decades behind the scenes, really inspirational. And I think, um, yeah, I just want to go into, you know, my work with that clear headedness and that, that reminder of you, you want to make these programs work for the just everyday people. Um, so that's my favorite Californian of 2021. Gustavo Arriado, Serena Dai, and Emily Hoven. Thanks so much for being a part of this special episode and a part of what is California and a part of telling California's story every day. I appreciate you so much. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Happy holidays and come back anytime, okay? Gracias. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you. And that is a wrap on the Year in Review episode of What is California? It is also a wrap on season one of What is California? Thank you so much 
for listening, whether you're a first time listener on this episode or you've been listening since Jerry Brown graced us with his presence on September 9th for California Mission Day. A little over three months later, 14 episodes later, we have put the first season to bed and I am so, so grateful for your listenership. What do you say we, uh, we do it again in 2022? Season two, what is California? Already got some great guests lined up. I'm very excited to share them with you in the new year. Meanwhile, our theme music is by Sound Supreme. You can find us on Twitter at WhatCalifornia and subscribe to the free Substack newsletter at whatiscalifornia.substack.com. That will get you a new episode in your inbox every Thursday when we return in January, and it will get you a free roundup of weekend links. Very cool California stories worth considering in your quest to understand the Golden State. That will come to you on Fridays. You can support What is California on Patreon at patreon.com slash whatiscalifornia. We got our first Patreon subscriber last week. Thank you, Brian. Shout out to Brian. If you too would like to give a few shekels to keep the cloud servers running and keep the headquarters cat fed, I would love that. Be very grateful for that. Patreon.com slash whatiscalifornia. You can email me anytime. Hello at whatiscalifornia.com. I'd always love to hear from you. Just to shout out, Happy holidays, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, anything you got, ideas for future guests, merchandise ideas, vegan eggnog recipes, fan mail for Elsie the cat, uh, you can send that to hello at what is California. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you liked what is California, please, please consider rating and reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts. It helps new listeners find us. That's going to do it for me. I'm going to go ahead and take the rest of the year off. I hope you are able to get a break as well. Thanks again for your listenership. Thanks again for sharing the podcast. Thanks again for forwarding the newsletter. And thanks again for being you. I appreciate you. I hope you have a great holiday season, a great New Year's. And until then, remember, as always, keep your eye on the bear.